Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the concept of mutual abuse. But before we jump into that topic, I'd love to remind you of PeaceWorks University. Yes, PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from what you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast week after week, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. Not only do we organize the content at PeaceWorks University, but you can benefit from hundreds of hours of previously recorded material handouts, worksheets, toolbox items, uh, Q&As, and interviews with experts in the field that can help you in a gospel-centered response to domestic abuse. If you want to learn more about PeaceWorks University, head on over to chrismoles.org, chrismoles.org. All right, so on today's topic, today's podcast, our topic is mutual abuse. We're going to be talking about this idea of mutual abuse. It's been in the news a lot lately at the time of this recording, but it's also a common question that, you know, comes across our desk, our email, uh, primarily from pastors and people helpers who tend to see a problem as, as relationally equal. And I'm hoping that today we can have a conversation to kind of clarify how you know we in the work use those terms and what we tend to hear when we hear the term mutual abuse mutual abuse is commonly used it's uh it's something that is commonly identified but often is miscited or misunderstood i'm going to suggest that most of the time when individuals are using the term mutual abuse they're actually not identifying the problem well as abuse by its very definition, is not mutual. And I bring that up because uh, I think this idea that um, our, our language of abuse can include aspects of mutuality really robs the term and our understanding of the term of its weight and its power and its significance. Abuse, generally speaking, is about an individual's use of power to dominate or control another individual. It is not about two individuals' use of force against each other. And I think that is something that uh, is actually harming or or, uh, detrimental to victims and their uh, healing is this idea of mutual abuse. In fact, in most cases, and I'm not saying that it's intentional in every case, but I'm going to say in most cases, it is victim blaming in that uh, bringing about you know mutuality within cases of abuse. And so let's just unpack a little bit. When we talk about abuse and types of abuse and violence that take place in intimate relationships, what are we talking about? I want to begin with the least frequent aspect of abuse and actually say that most of us would not categorize this as domestic violence. And even though 
there are sometimes arrestable offenses from a legal law enforcement code standpoint. Most of us in the work would not even categorize this as domestic violence, and it's what is sometimes referred to as situational violence, non-battery-related violence, or couples violence. And that is often what is most closely related to what people might call mutual abuse. Uh, within that, we're, we're not talking, again, about one person using power over another. We're talking about two individuals who situationally, circumstantially, have used acts of violence against each other. But situational violence doesn't involve, for instance, a pattern. And so if there's no pa pattern of coercive control, no pattern or history of violence or abuse, uh, then it may fall into this category of situational violence. Uh, it also does not include attempts to control. And so within situational or couples violence, there's no attempt to control. Thirdly, there's no resistance to control. And then lastly, there's recognition of a problem. And so imagine, if you will, you have a couple, and they're engaged in a conflict, and that conflict escalates to, say, shoving. Both parties in that part, in that, in that uh, situation, for it to qualify as situational violence, would have to recognize that it doesn't involve a pattern. This has never happened before. This is not historical, and it's not made us on a pattern. It doesn't include one person using power over another. It just includes a conflict. And there's no attempts to control, right, the situation, or the individual, or the outcome. And therefore, there's no resistance to that control. And following said conflict, the parties recognize we have a problem, and they seek help. Now, technically, a situation like I described could include arrestable offenses. It could include some form of being charged with domestic assault or domestic battery, even though the category doesn't fall into, philosophically, what we would call domestic violence. I hope this is making some level of sense. When people talk about mutual abuse, my mind, as a, as a domestic violence worker, immediately goes to situational violence. You mean non-battery-related violence. But most of the time, when people use the term mutual abuse, they're conflating the next two categories that I want to deliver to you. And category one is what we call coercive control. When we talk about domestic violence... When we in the work talk about domestic abuse, we are talking about coercive control or what has historically been known as battering. Now, I know when you hear, when often when we hear the term battering or battery, we think of physical assault. But philosophically, historically, when we in the work have talked about battering or being a battered woman, which was the language that we used to use, uh, it was much more about this larger umbrella of coercion and control. What you might see if you're unpacking, say, the Duluth Power and Control Wheel, or what you might encounter if you're dialoguing with an, a victim of abuse who's giving you a history and you begin to see the pattern and experiences the weight of abuse.
So when we talk about domestic violence, we're typically talking about coercive control or battering. And that's the ongoing use of coercion, threats, and controlling actions targeted at a victim. These include acts of intimidation, acts of violence that reduce the safety and the sanity of a victim. The reason why we talk about coercive control and the reason why this is the category that we want to identify most or primarily as domestic violence is it understands that in cases of domestic abuse, there is what we would call a primary player and a secondary player. What law enforcement may be trained to identify now as the primary aggressor. Now notice even that language. This is something we would train in say uh, police academies, law enforcement training seminars, or um, continuing education for law enforcement is when interacting with domestic violence cases from, from a law enforcement perspective. We haven't even gotten to the point of just seeing this philosophically, but even from a law enforcement perspective, historically, when police and law enforcement would encounter domestic uh, violence reports or domestic abuse situations, it would not be uncommon for them to arrest both parties, to simply categorize it as mutual abuse and to move on because it was easy, right? It wrapped up very nicely and it allowed them to move on to something else. But also it affected statistics um, drastically and it didn't get to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem being that in most of these cases, it's not situational violence. It's not um, non-battery related violence. It's not common couples violence. It is one person using power to control another. And law enforcement recognized that and began to do training on determining the primary aggressor. Who, if we remove from the situation, right, would contribute most to now providing safety. In other words, who's the most dangerous person in the situation? Who's the one who not only started this, but controls and has the power in the situation? They were beginning to recognize, just as we are saying, that abuse is not a conflict between two people, but it is one person using power to control another. I like the terminology uh, predominant aggressor because it, by its very nature, by its very um, language, indicates that two people are possibly being aggressive. But there's one person that is primarily responsible for the aggression. They are the ones who escalate. They are the ones who hold power, and they are the ones who are controlling. And that leads us to our third category. So when you hear the term mutual abuse, um, the only time that it could be even close to applicable, and I don't think it's applicable at all because abuse, again, is one person using power over another, but the only way it could possibly make sense is to actually say you mean situational violence non-battery related violence, uh, an incident of couples violence that has no pattern, no history, no power, no control, and no resistance, right? But most of the time, I think what we are encountering when individuals, helpers, leaders, churches uh, use the term mutual violence, mutual abuse, what they're actually seeing is not situational violence, but what they're actually witnessing is a primary aggressor and a secondary aggressor, an individual who's using power and control 
and an individual who's resisting power and control. And that'd be the third category is what we would call resistance. So resistance can include both legal and illegal means. It can include both uh, ethical and unethical means. It can include both uh, righteous and sinful means of force. It, It can be this idea of responding to abuse with force, which is used by victims of coercive control, victims of battering. So often what happens is you're presented with a case where both individuals are violent, aggressive, uh, angry, demonstrative. Rather than just jumping at a label and saying, well, that's mutual abuse, begin to do the hard work of peeling back the layers, asking good questions, and the odds are really good. They are really good. If you begin to do the hard work of asking good questions, that rather than two individuals who are using equal force against each other, more than likely you have one person using power to control and another person using resistive means um, or violent means or forceful means to resist that control. Now, again, I want to honor, to a degree, anyone who's willing to resist abuse. That should happen. When when possible, we should resist oppression. And that's going to look differently with different folks. Uh, For some folks, resisting, their their primary choice to resist is to be uh, compliant, to be agreeable in the moment in the hopes that it goes by quickly. For others, they're going to be violent and aggressive in that moment in an attempt to to end or overpower the other partner. Uh, Usually that doesn't work either. Uh, But resistance is really about responding to abuse. And what happens a lot in the church world, this is where I want to segue, I think sometimes in the church world where we like to use that term mutual abuse, what what we're actually saying is, okay, Someone made really bad decisions. They used their power to harm their partner. And then their partner chose to use sinful means to resist. And when we see that, what we tend to do is one of two things. We either mutualize the abuse by saying, well, see, you know, she sinned against him too. So they're both at fault. Or we say, we actually highlight the victim's sin as being somehow worse. Well, if she just responded with kindness and gentleness, this wouldn't have escalated, which is just not true. Uh, A victim doesn't have the power of escalation or de-escalation. It belongs to the abuser, the individual in power, which is why we talk a great deal about power and control. So again, when we're talking about abuse, we're really excluding mutuality. And so when we're coming to a scene where we're getting a disclosure where even the victim resists sinfully, we have to have the wisdom and the wherewithal to begin to categorize what we're hearing and seeing properly. Now, does that mean that we celebrate sinful resistance? No, I don't think we do. I think there is a place in which we as counselors and pastors and people helpers can at some point address a sinful nature of resistance. But I don't want to do that in the context of the abuse. I want to address the abuse first and, and, and primarily and aggressively. I want to address the abuse thoroughly. 
And I want to put the responsibility for the abuse solely upon the head of the abuser. And when we use terms like mutual abuse because we're either uncomfortable or unaware of sinful forms of resistance or forms of resistance that make us uncomfortable or resistance at all, when we mutualize abuse, we in turn are blaming the victim or drawing the victim into equal categories as it's the abuser. So I'd like to jettison the term from our uh, vocabulary if we could. We're really not talking about mutual abuse. It just doesn't happen. We could be talking about situational violence that's usually easy to resolve, easy to end, easy to give strategies and help to prevent it from happening in the future. But we need to be more aware that much of the time we're encountering coercion, control, and battery, that much of the time we're seeing victims resist that coercion, control, and battery. And we as people helpers, in particular those in the church, need to be bold enough and courageous enough to confront coercion and control, to confront oppression, to confront sinful behavior that would lead one to use power to control their partner. And yes, when appropriate, interact with sinful forms of resistance. By the way, resistance by its very nature is reactionary. And so in what regard would creating righteous forms of resistance in a marriage affect change on the oppressor? Yeah, it's necessary, and the Bible is chock full of examples of that. The New Testament alone is full of examples of biblical resistance, and I think we could have many discussions from passages like uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, from Romans chapter 12, from 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, and many others that talk to us about doing good to those who harm us, blessing those who curse us. But at the same time, there's responsibilities for those of us within the church as people helpers to confront those who oppress, especially those who claim to be in the household of God, especially those within the walls of the church, especially those who are using power to harm their wives and children. So make no mistake about it. The term mutual abuse may sound good, It may help us clarify what we think we're seeing. It may give us an easy term uh, to label um, marital conflict. But underlying all of that, it may indirectly or directly, depending upon our heart, blame victims for the abuse. Give equal weight to coercion and resistance. And I just believe we're better served to call out what is actually happening. One person using power to control and dominate another. And yes, sometimes victims using resistance um, that could be better, that perhaps is sinful, but nonetheless is resistive. Let's address the problem. Then we can come back and talk about how we're responding. I hope that was helpful. I know that for me as a pastor and a leader, reading and hearing, not just in the public eye, but also within the church, categories like mutual abuse are disheartening to me. And I know they're disheartening to victims. So let's be better, better equipped, better trained, better resourced to identify uh, abuse in all its forms. If you'd like to learn more about um, aspects of abuse and the way the gospel responds, I know I don't normally end the podcast with a commercial, but 
I think it's important if you're a pastor, a people helper, or a leader, and topics like this intrigue you, let me encourage you to check out PeaceWorks University. Uh, our online membership community has many resources just like this, former conference uh, talks that I've done, lectures, conversations that really provide a better framework, a clear framework of what we're talking about when it comes to abuse so that we can be better equipped not to blame victims, not to hold victims accountable for their, their abusers' acts, but to really call abusers to account while at the same time comforting and caring for those who are being harmed. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We really appreciate everybody. Please subscribe, rate, review, depending upon the platform you're listening on. And until next time, God bless.